Welcome. Thanks for tuning in. We're so glad you found us. If this is your first time, we give a special shout out and welcome to you and say thanks for being here. And if this is your spiritual home, we say welcome to you. And here we are. It's the fourth Sunday of Advent. So, so glad that you can be part of this online experience. This is the Sunday of the Candle of Love. As we lean into our experience today, we want to remind you that we are having an in-person Christmas Eve service here at 6 p.m. would invite you if you're in town to come and join us. And our online experience will be at 8 p.m. So we hope that you can make one of those. And we want to invite you to join us in our Giving Tree program for this Advent. There is a Giving Tree here in the narthex of the church. It has ornaments on it. You can see a link here in the worship notes if you'd like to participate. Just a way for us to offer just love in a very practical way to people that none of us will ever meet probably, just to encourage them through the amazing program that Compassion International does. There's all sorts of choices you can make, and so take a look at the link, and I hope that you'll be part of that. After our worship gathering today, we will be celebrating communion online. And so we would invite you to find a cracker or a small piece of bread and some juice and have that ready and available. Like sheep that wander too far from the shepherd, we also lose our way. And once ensnared by the thicket, all we long for is our release. What did God pay for this ransom? He sent us his son. I'm wondering if you've ever faced something that was in your view, if you will, in your sight line, that took your breath away. Maybe it was a time that you stepped to the edge of the Grand Canyon. If we could ring up our friends, uh, the Walter family, who visited the Grand Canyon this summer, I'll bet they could give testimony to just the beauty of what they saw as they arrived there for the first time. Or I can remember as Melinda and I headed out to Colorado a couple of years ago for a week-long biking adventure. As we drove closer and closer to the front line of the uh, Colorado Rockies, of just the majesty and the beauty in that. Or maybe it was a time when you witnessed the sun rising uh, from the top of a mountain, like maybe Mount G's down near Butler, maybe in your backyard, uh, just looking out over the deck, where as the sun came up and it broke through the clouds, it just left you with a feeling that just you stood in awe. I was just so amazed by it. Or, or maybe you're one of the millions who have witnessed the night sky extravaganza that's inside the Magic Kingdom at Disney World. Uh, all the oohs and the ahs as the evening fireworks take off and it's a show and then the grand finale is just a sight to behold. It takes your breath away. Let me even share with you the recent uh, Christmas tree lighting in Ashland that ended with fireworks. Check this out. All these moments are memorable, but nothing this side of heaven can take the place of the shock and the holy awe that those shepherds experienced on that night that heaven came down and kissed the earth, the first Christmas. The magic kingdom has nothing on the kingdom of God when it comes to a heavenly host lighting up the night sky and then blasting a chorus of praise 
that proclaimed the call of Christmas. It was a call to praise. And the scriptures say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Those were the words that the angels proclaimed on the night when their eternal king, who was and is and is yet to come, took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, as we say, as he was born in a manger there in that far off distant land. Some have described this unforgettable holy night as the splendor of the vision. It's a sharp contrast to the commonness of the event. You think about a simple manger that's holding the Messiah, the rescuer of the world, coupled with the magnificent message from the angel that was magnified and sung by the heavenly host. On earth as it is in heaven became real. This week we're back in Luke's gospel where he sets the stage for this scene. And we're in and around the little town of Bethlehem. This is where the prophecies uh, in the Old Testament of long ago foretold that the Messiah would be born. The ruler of the day, this guy, we all know his name, right? Caesar Augustus. He thought that they needed to have a census so he could update his tax rolls. And as he was doing that, in the midst of that, he really frustrated his Jewish friends because they just didn't want the hassle because it reminded them as they made their way back to their roots and their hometowns that this decree, this travel registration, was all about the fact that they were subjects to Rome, and that just bothered us so many of them. That was the news of the day. But the good news for us, the good news then even, is that God is going to send himself into the fury of the mess to bring peace. Little did Caesar Augustus know that God sovereignly was at work through his annoying Roman decree. But God, we know, has a way of moving through the affairs of nations to accomplish his own purposes. And so this Christmas, if you're feeling furious or annoyed, frustrated, or whatever it might be, it's just really bugging you, I want you to take heart because God longs to insert himself into your life situations to bring you peace and to give you hope. And God has this amazing knack to use ordinary opportunities to highlight the extraordinary. Three times we're going to see here in the Gospel of Luke, he's going to mention the common manger as the unique sign where the shepherds will find the Christ child who will be wrapped in swaddling clothes. And the splendor of that vision that comes from the angels to the shepherds would literally forever change not only their lives, but also the lives of all those who eventually would hear of this good news as they would share it. Let's hear this story from Luke chapter 2, and let's watch this call of Christmas as it takes the breath away from the shepherds, as these angels show up, and then the heavenly host shows up and proclaims and gives praise to the fact that the majesty has arrived. Man has worked the field since his fall. By beast or by crop, in plenty and in drought. He must tame the land or be tamed by it. The shepherd knows this well. He is a keeper. He is a guardian. He is a guide. And his flock, aimless in all their attempts, pulls him far away to chase their fickle hearts. How peculiar it is that God omnipotent would take the post of a shepherd.
not be afraid. Don't, don't be afraid. You don't be afraid. For I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, has been born this night in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find the babe wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. A baby? A manger? Glory to God in the highest! Peace on earth and goodwill toward men! Glory to God in the highest! Peace on earth and goodwill toward men! Glory to God in the highest! Peace on earth and goodwill toward men! So the shepherds left their flock and hurried to the village of Bethlehem. In society's eyes, shepherds should not be the first ones to greet the King of Kings. But isn't that just like the creator of the universe? He uses lowly people to do amazing things for his glory. This message of Advent, the one that the angel had communicated to Mary and Joseph many months ago in Nazareth, had finally arrived. Jesus the Messiah was born to Mary the Virgin and her faithful man Joseph, who was by her side all the way. It had been a long 70-mile haul over many days and many hills of rough terrain from Nazareth and Galilee up to the city of David just outside of Jerusalem and can't imagine how especially difficult it was for a pregnant woman who was in her third trimester. Traveling via foot on the back of a donkey was not the most comfortable situation when a baby boy was bouncing around on your bladder all the way to Bethlehem. But they made it, and their secret message from the angels soon would be expanded way beyond just the two of them. The angels were about to go public with this proclamation of the Messiah's birth. Up to this point, the angel encounters that we've seen regarding the call of Christmas, have been basically one-on-one. There was one-on-one with Mary and one-on-one with Joseph in the dream. And even the first one we talked about was with Zechariah when he was in the temple, where he would learn that his wife Elizabeth would have a child in their old age. This promised son, John the Baptist, would be instrumental in preparing the way for his cousin, Jesus the Lord, who soon would make his subversive arrival. When the angel shared The message of the Messiah in the first public setting, it was not in the temple, it was not near the Holy of Holies, nor was it to a virgin chosen to be the mother of God, nor was it during a dream to a just man who lived every letter of God's law, 
Rather, it was out on the fields to a bunch of society's outcasts. And Luke says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. It's no small matter that the lowest class of society, these shepherds, were included in the public announcement. You see, what it teaches us is that God will not exclude any people from his good news. Even though the shepherds were considered lowly in their occupation, that they were somehow untrustworthy because of their character, and that they were ceremonially unclean to be able to attend worship in the temple, this was the group with whom God wanted the message to go public. It's really interesting, I think. What the shepherds experienced out in the field was unforgettable. It all but took their breath away, which is why the first words from the angel dealt with naming and trying to dissipate their fear, right? He says, and the angel said to them, fear not, Luke chapter 2, verse 10. We've talked about this before. Billy Graham, if you remember in his book on angels, God's Secret Agents, he talks about the character of angels. And he talks about how over and over again, the presence of angels was a frightening thing to those to whom they, they appeared. But unless they came with judgment, the angels spoke a word of reassurance every time they showed up. They calmed the people to whom they came. This tells us that the appearance of an angel is awe-inspiring and it's something about, yet at the same time, that awakens the human heart in a way that creates fear. They represent a presence, if you will, that has greatness and it will send a chill down anyone's spine. But when the angel had quieted their fears of these shepherds, he brings this message one that will be forever connected with the good news. The angel says, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. As Billy Graham goes on to write in his book, the angel brought good news, not bad news. The shepherds already knew the bad news, and that was that the human race had sinned and that we, they were lost and broken. But the angel has come to tell them that God was going to do something different about their lostness. And he points out that the good news was not simply for the people of one nation, but for the whole world. The good news was that the Savior had come. In the ancient world, a Savior primarily was a deliverer from disease or from danger or from the human predicament in the world. Jesus was arriving to cure the sin that was a problem for humanity once and for all. The human race needed someone who could bring them back into fellowship with God because the blood of bulls and goats, it wasn't enough to do it in a permanent way, but the blood of the Savior could. The angel message was that God had come. Redemption was possible. This Savior was Christ the Lord. See, Christ is the name that means Messiah, the anointed one to rule as king in fulfillment of God's promise to David as an heir to his lineage and throne. And then Lord is a title and name that speaks of the divine nature of the one who was born and is a reference to Yahweh of the Old Testament. The Lord had visited his people with salvation in a divine and a promise-fulfilling way, and it was further validated, proclaimed, and accompanied with a call to praise when the angel army of heaven showed up, and when they showed up in that night sky over those fields where the shepherds were with their flocks. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. 
I want you to see the kindness of God here as he unfolds this message and, and brings it before these shepherds. First, God sends a single angel to meet with these men that are out in the field. As they catch their breath and they begin to process what they're experiencing and they know they're not going to die, then the heavenly host breaks onto the scene and lights up the sky with their presence and praise. Had the order of their arrival been reversed, the shepherds likely would have all had heart attacks from being overwhelmed with the company of those who dwell in the presence of the Holy One. But God sent the one before he sent the host of angels. Biblical scholar William Hedrickson, we've mentioned him before, makes the point that these angels, having been associated with Christ in heaven before his incarnation, knew something about his glory and his riches and his majesty. There are three chapters in the Bible that peel back the curtain of heaven, and they allow those of us on earth to peer behind the veil into what was happening in the presence of the heavenly king. And as we think about the heavenly host, all these angels breaking into the song before the lowly shepherds, we need to frame that scene with these glimpses of the heavenly host. These passages are lengthy, but they're worth leaning into to get a feel for the encounter this group of angels from heaven suddenly transports to the Bethlehem countryside skies. With the context of these scenes from the scriptures, we better understand what we mean when we sing, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. In Isaiah chapter six, one through seven, are recounted the scene of one with the heavenly host praising the Lord. The writer says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Again, that was Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And then we jump to the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 4, we get the second scene with the heavenly host praising the Lord. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open to heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, whoever lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Heavy stuff, but amazing, the, the, the language here. And then Revelation chapter 5, the next chapter, gives us the third scene with the heavenly host praising the Lord. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. You see, we need to be reminded that these angels had resided throughout all of eternity in heaven around the throne of God, consistently had lived lives that were all about praising and honoring and worshiping King Jesus. They had become aware of man's fall and had been informed that God had provided a way of salvation for all of humanity. We can assume, at least, that the very birth of Jesus Christ in a condition of poverty and deprivation must have caused these angels to stand in awe of God's indescribably marvelous love. One might perhaps say that having become informed about the Savior's birth, a birth under such circumstances and with such sacrificing purpose, these angels never before had been so thrilled. No wonder that from the bottom of their hearts they should say, Glory to God in the highest. You see, it's the incarnation. It was the incarnation that was a call to praise because that is what they had done as created supernatural beings from the inception of their creation. The angels desire that all creation shall praise his holy name. Their demonstration before the shepherds that Christmas night made an indelible impression on those who literally had a front row seat into heaven. As the host returned to heaven from where they came, the shepherds soon would heed their call to Christmas to join in the praising of the Lord they would find in the manger. 
Luke continues, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph, and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. That's Luke chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. Now, before we observe the actions of the shepherds, don't miss this detail here. The angels went away from them into heaven. It's interesting to note that the way Jesus returned to heaven at his ascension is the same way many scholars believe the heavenly hosts returned to heaven after their appearance and their concert before the shepherds. The writer of Acts says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in the white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. While the angels in white told the disciples that Jesus would return one day to earth in the same manner in which he just left, the phrase, a cloud took him out of their sight, is believed by many biblical scholars to be a cloud of angels that came back from heaven's throne room to escort their reigning champion and king, Jesus, back to his rightful place that he willingly vacated to become savior of the world and to make a way for peace to be experienced between holy God and sinful humans. This is the call of Christmas. It was the call God the Father gave Jesus the Son at his, his mission to accomplish the power of the Holy Spirit. And it started with a virgin birth in a manger. The shepherds were told the manger would be the sign to indicate which baby in Bethlehem would be the one who would save all the people from their sins. And they went with haste and they found everything just as the angel had said. That's the trick, isn't it? You know what to do, but do you do it? You see, the doctor will prescribe a treatment, but you have to take it, right? Or you can sit with a financial planner and he can help map out how to get out of debt and how to accomplish some big gains and some big goals financially. But you have to lay those plans into action. You have to do them. You can, or you can meet with a trainer and they can have you lift all these weights and you can run these drills and you can get your heart rate to a certain level, but they can't make you do it. You have to do it. The shepherds knew what they had been told. But then they had to go, and go they did. That's what the scriptures tell us. And when they got there, they told all who were present what the angel had told them. Suddenly the secret was out. It was no longer just a Mary and Joseph secret message from the angel. These shepherds from the field had been told where to find the Messiah. Look for the baby in the manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. This will be the sign. And that message is what Mary treasured in her heart. It is the message the shepherds would tell all who they came into contact with upon their return to their jobs. And so we don't want to miss that part either. They went back to work after they had celebrated Jesus' birth. At some point, you have to go back to the reality of the world and to work. And the shepherds did that too. Yet we don't want to underestimate the fact that the shepherds not only were the first evangelists of the good news, but also they went back to work. They saw those domains where they worked as the greatest place to be where they could be on mission and where they could tell others about Jesus. Dr. Bob Roberts, a Christian author and pastor, writes at length about how it is within the domains of society that God desires to do his greatest work. 
He notes in his writings that there are eight primary domains within a given society, each with several examples of careers. The eight domains of society are agricultural and water, that's where the shepherds worked, social and civil society, education, communication, science and technology, governance, medical, and economics. No matter how advanced or how primitive the people and culture, these eight domains are found in all societies. In his book, Lessons from the East, Dr. Roberts suggests, quote, the church is present in every domain of society as disciples live, love, and serve there. When the church is considered a separate domain, it becomes isolated from the rest of society. When this happens, the church becomes marginalized as one of the many competing voices instead of God's people living powerfully and lovingly in every domain of society. Also, when the church is a domain, often it's viewed primarily as a political force and God's people are seen as narrow and angry and demanding. This, of course, further marginalizes the credibility of the church. Roberts also goes on to say that God has given us a bigger and a broader and a deeper purpose than carving out a single domain. The task of the church is to make disciples who engage the broader context of society for the kingdom of God increasingly to be realized on earth as it is in heaven. You see, we don't establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven by remaining separated and marginalized. We take steps to make the kingdom a reality in our world by living for Christ in every domain in our society and in the love and power of the Holy Spirit and in not being manipulative or not strong-arming or using the methods of the world. And this is where our Reformed understanding of sola deo gloria comes into play, uh, everything for the glory of God. Because when we go back to our jobs and we go back to school and to our neighborhoods and to the friendships and the lives that we encounter after the holidays, we do them well as we love others and tell the story of the good news of Jesus. We love God and we love others. Jesus is the one who came to save us. He is our Savior. He is Christ the Lord. We get to be like the shepherds, telling the story of Jesus as we go about our day and our way of life, whatever domain we happen to work and live in. It's my prayer that in this Christmas that we may be the people, you and I together, who carry the good news of Jesus in all the domains of society so that all the people of the earth can hear this call of Christmas that leads to praising Jesus. The same kind of praise like the heavenly host did that night so many years ago and that they continue to do throughout all eternity. An act of praise that we can respond with is the celebrating of communion. And so as you've got your elements there, let us begin first as we're reminded by Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians with the invitation of institution. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Take and eat this. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink this and do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so let us pray. Father, we give thanks for your creative power, for your redeeming love and your providential care throughout the ages. 
from the history of ancient Israel to the church today, and especially as we once again celebrate Christmas and your advent and coming the first time. The idea of your coming in the flesh, the incarnation, Emmanuel. So we give thanks and we remember your birth and your life and your death and your resurrection, and then your ascension, who you are, Jesus Christ, as our King and our Lord. And we pray for this time. We offer our lives to you, God, in thanksgiving, and we praise you as we remember what Jesus has done and we celebrate this meal. And we pray all this in your strong name. Amen. Take and eat. Take and drink. And let us respond together with the Lord's Prayer as again an act of praise. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.